Hello, and welcome to Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. I'm your host, Harrison Greenbaum. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. if you're on the East Coast, 4 p.m. if you're on the West Coast. Uh, there's a little banner for that. There you go. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 or 4, depending where you are. This is available online, both in video form. You're watching it right now on youtube.com slash Harrison Greenbaum. Uh, also available as a podcast through Apple Music, through Google Play, through Spotify. Uh, it's soon to be on Pandora and available through your Alexa, all that great stuff. Um, go to whobooksthat.com for more info. Thanks to you guys downloading this podcast as well as leaving great reviews. It is in the top 100 performing arts podcasts in six different countries around the world. Let's see if I can remember them. The US, the UK, Canada, Australia, Germany, Japan, Sweden, Denmark. Wait, that's eight. That's eight. Eight different countries around the world. Um, so keep that coming. Thank you so much for subscribing and for leaving those positive reviews. Um, that really does a, a, goes a long way towards spreading the message. And this show is presented by the International Brotherhood of Magicians. Go to magician.org slash join the IBM slash join. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it's magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. It is a fantastic organization. They've been bringing content to you uh, multiple times a week since the pandemic started. Uh, it's a gargantuan task. It's been amazing. So make sure you support them. And if you are a member already, renew your membership. Um, you can do that all at the link right below. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Harrison Comedy. This show is actually being broadcast right now live on Instagram at Harrison Comedy. So uh, it's another way to watch the show. Well, uh, thank you guys already for tuning in. Uh, we have so many people already uh, sending in comments. Glenn is in Newburgh, New York. Dan Irwin is in Kissimmee, Florida. Glenn Mackin saying, Harry Lorraine, my absolute favorite. And Carmen West out in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Uh, thank you guys already for tuning in. We can see the comments. As you have questions or comments, please just uh, put them below on YouTube or Facebook and we will work them into the show. We'll try to get to as many comments and questions as we can. Let us introduce our main event, our guest for tonight. He was a surprise guest on the Steve Cohen episode just uh, two weeks ago. Uh, that was episode number 27. So make sure you check it out. Um, this guy is one of the most influential authors one of the most influential performers, one of the most influential writers, uh, thinkers, uh, just one of the most influential magicians, uh, according to Magic Magazine, in the 20th century. But we are now two decades into the 21st century, and there's no sign of him stopping yet. He's been on The Tonight Show. He's been on The Ed Sullivan Show. He has best-selling, New York Times best-selling books. He's written over 52 books, sold tens of millions of copies. He is a legend an absolute legend, and I could not be more excited to have him on the show. Make some noise, get excited from your apartment or home. It's the one and only Harry Lorraine. How you doing, Harry? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> I wanted it to be a very subtle, low-key introduction. I hope I achieved it. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know I was that legendary. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 52 books is extraordinary. Um, what, what is the secret to being that prolific? I'm working on my first book and I'm having trouble. You knocked out 52 of these things. Actually, it's 53. Somebody's got to stop me. Oh, my you know, God. <laughs> you know why? My son, Robert, my daughter-in-law, Elizabeth, talked me into one other thing. So if you go to my website, which I think you just 
put out there yep. on the screen. If you go there, that's the first thing you see is an ad for that. It's called, uh, what are they there? Oh, some more jaw droppers is what it's called. And it, it was originally an ebook, but a lot of people, at least so they told me, they're handling it, said they'd rather it was something they can hold in their hands, you know, regular book. So it's going to be, make it get a regular book also. So anyway, when you said 52, I wanted to tell you it's really 53. Now, can you believe that? 53 books, not counting the 20 years of my magazine apocalypse. That's right. <laughs> and you asked me what made you, you know what? I can't answer that question. I just, something comes to my mind that I like to write it down, I guess. I, I don't know. Is there a method to it? Do you sit down at the typewriter and just keep going? Do you break it up into little chunks? No, no, I never use it. I'm a longhand writer. Or oh, well, wow. what do they what do they call it in the school? Script. I, they never called it that when I went to school. I write everything longhand. Everything I've ever written, longhand. Fifty-three people, books handwritten. Uh, say that again. So fifty-three books handwritten. Word All every one, one of them, book. right? But then. Then it took me quite a long time for people to talk me in from my handwritten writing, excuse me, to put it on a computer. You know, I started, let's face it, my first book is in 1956. So I'm using an old royal typewriter where you're hitting with your fingers, you know. And that changed a little as years went by. It was became more electronic after a while. But it took a long time for me. I think it was only my last three or four books that I took from my handwritten writing onto the computer. It always scared the heck out of me. You know, I didn't want my writing to disappear. Absolutely. And and one of the books uh, that is great is your memoir, um, in which you talked about your early life. And I think we should, we could start off by talking about that because um, 53 books and you, you only had one year of high school, you had dyslexia, um, and yet one of the most prolific writers I've ever met, for sure. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of overcoming the, the initial adversity? And also a, a Depression-era kid, too. That, that could not have been easy. So, you know, I last thing again. I'm sorry. Oh, I said you were, you were a kid during the Depression, which also could not have been uh, an, an easy well, thing either, in the Lower East Side. No, no, no I, was, well, I guess it was right. I think the Depression started in 29. I was born in 26. So I was, you know, a little kid. And... You know, I lived on the Lower East Side of New York City, uh, right off the East River. Uh, that's that's Avenue D. That picture you just showed. It's a that's about a block or two blocks off the East River, and it was a ghetto. You know, it, uh, we didn't know that word at that time. And you also have to remember, Harrison, that there was no television then. So what I was living through, I thought the whole world was that way. You know, uh, it was a terribly poor area. My parents, my father, father and mother, they were professional poor people. They were better than all the others when it, <laughs> when, it came, when it came to poorness. So, yeah, I had kind of a, a wicked, strange childhood. Uh, one of the things I had read was that uh, one of the reasons most of the tricks in, in these 53 books are with a borrowed deck, uh, besides for them being a more powerful effect, because obviously you, the cards can't be rigged in any way because it's not your deck. Right. Um, but that you didn't want to destroy a sign or because you, you didn't want to, 
basically you, you didn't have enough money to have more than one deck, so you didn't want to destroy it or do anything to it. When I was a kid and I, and I got into card magic, when I saw somebody do a card trick, I went to my house, which was a tenement, as I told you, on the Lower East Side, five-story tenement. I lived on the fifth floor. There were no elevators. So I saw the, every landing every day, and I always saw milk bottles outside. In those days, the way it, I don't know how it worked, but they put out, the people would put out empty milk bottles. They were all glass in those days. And the milkman would come, take the empty milk bottles and put full ones in their place. The reason I mentioned that is when I had seen the card trick and got all excited and I said, I wish I could do that, blah, blah, blah. I needed a deck of cards to try to work out the trick I had seen. I stole, I don't know how many milk bottles, I think the deposit you got was two pennies or something. So I stole enough, I had checked in a store and a, the cheapest deck in those days was 18 cents, at least to the store I went to. <coughs> Excuse me. And so I stole enough milk bottles to get 18 cents to get a deck of cards. And I started to work out the trick, but you're right. I've written about this a lot, that the best way, the better you are, the better card man you are, the more important it is for the use borrowed decks. Because this is hard to explain verbally. I, I sure enough explained it a lot in books. If you're doing just normal, ordinary year kind of silly tricks, they don't care. But if you do an impossibility, if you do a great card trick, the people are always going to think the same thing. It's got to be a trick deck. That's the problem. I've written that if you use your own deck, you're always going to lose anywhere from 10 to 20% of the effectiveness of that trick if you use your own deck. I remember, as long as we're on the subject, I was doing a lecture for magicians, and I was talking about this, and one of the guys in the audience yelled out, no, 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 Harry, I use my own deck, but when I'm finished with my performance, I give the deck to somebody, sort of loads a regular deck. And I said, you know, I tried that decades ago. And I, could, <laughs> I really did. Because, you know, I don't make up these stories. And thank God I could write things that happened to me. And, and people find those things interesting, which is, again, thank God for that. I remember doing just that. I finished and I did pretty, I do pretty strong card tricks. And they were all impromptu, you know, regular deck things. And I handed the deck to a woman standing in front of me. I can still picture her and I can still hear her. <clears throat> Excuse me, I get emotional. <laughs> I gave her a deck of cards and I said, so you see, it's a regular deck. And she said, I'm not a magician. I can't see the trickery of the cards. In other words, she didn't believe me. It, what, I don't care what you do. If you're using your own deck, they're going to think there's something in the deck to cause these impossible things. That's right. what, I, what I meant when I said the more impossible your trick is, the more they're going to think it's a trick deck. So the only way to get out of that is to use their deck. I remember, you know, talk about little vignettes that come to my mind. Oh, this is so many decades ago when I had black hair and was good, <laughs> and was good looking. Uh, I was doing some close-up work for a whole group of people, and I 
gave the deck to a Mr. Stevens, if I remember correctly, that was his name, because he had given me his deck. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is not my deck, this belongs to Mr. Stevens. And one of the people in the crowd turned to Mr. Stevens and said, what are you, uh, you made this deal with Harry, did you? They still didn't believe it. In other words, I'm telling you, the more impossible your trick is, the more you have to prove that it is not your deck. Right. <laughs> that's it. Sometimes that's hard to do, but that's what they got to do. So for the last, oh, it's got to be four decades, if not longer, I never carry a deck with me. And people have always asked me, gee, Harry, what if you go to a friend's house and they ask you to do a couple of card tricks? I said, A, if they know me, if they're not going to ask me, they know to have a deck of cards there. Because <laughs> they know I'm not going to carry one. Right? And if they don't have a deck of cards, I'll say, I'm sorry, I don't have any cards. And this has happened a number of times. And they'll have somebody run out to the nearest cigar store to buy a deck of cards. Which is all right with me. They know it's a brand new deck. They open it. And which I was not too happy about because got to remember when I was a kid, I worked with old beat up decks for years till they were this thick from sweat and dirt, you know? <laughs> so I was used to decks that have been used a while. So I had to break it in. I had to shuffle it a lot and do some simple tricks before the cards were kind of broken in, you know? No, I love that. Especially, you know, I, I've been teaching at Magic Camp now for 15 years. And one of the biggest changes is we used to save up our money and buy books like the, the Giant Apocalypse. Right. Um, you know, everybody, that was always such a great resource. Um, and the kids now are buying those collectible decks of cards that they spend $12, $13 on one deck. And it's so precious to them. And it feels like it actually takes away some of the magic because if the deck is fancy, then why? I think the audience might assume... What else about it is, is special? or, or Absolutely. Or to me, that's so obvious. There's no way in the world I would use my own deck for the last, like I say, four or five decades. No way. I'm not going to lose that 10 or 20% of effectiveness. That effectiveness that is, it was very important to me. I want to fool people. I don't want them to say, ah, it's got to be a trick deck. Right. Yeah. And also, I mentioned the uh, apocalypse. Um the, the Magic Magazine you put out, uh, where does that name come from? And do you think of re-releasing it now that we're living in the actual apocalypse? <laughs> no, uh, there's no reason to re-release uh, uh, release it. I'm not reprinting any books. I'm, I'm getting too old for that, you know, but my son and daughter-in-law uh, daughter are sort of taking over, you know, and they're going to reprint a lot of my books. Fine. You know, whatever they want to do is fine with me. I've, Whatever I have, whatever I've done, I've done for my son, you know, and he can do whatever he wants. And when you ask me about the name, you know, there was no real reason for that. I remember sitting down with a legal pad and a thick dictionary and going over every word and whatever struck me, I'd write on the legal pad. And when I was through with the whole book, I had about three or four pages of the legal pad with just words, words that <laughs> struck me. Then I started to go over the words on the legal pad pages and cross out whatever I said, well, I don't need this. Long story short, I did that for a whole day till there were three, <laughs> till there were three or four words left. One of them was apocalypse and the end of the story is I ended up with that word. No particular reason. I, if, if only you had figured it out earlier because that's, that's in the first letter of the alphabet. You could have saved yourself a trip through the dictionary. Exactly, but I never thought of that at that time. You know? 
Somebody asked a really great question. Um, Glenn Mackin said, what was your favorite magic book growing up and who were your magic inspirations? Um, so basically, when you were a kid, did you see any magicians or did you not see other magicians perform until you essentially were a magician already? I didn't know any magicians until I got out of the army. I was only, a, I had enlisted when I was 17 and a half. I got out when I was about 18 and a half. Boy, I rode under that picture that you just showed. You know, <laughs> if we had a few more like that, we would have lost the war, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> Anyway, I enlisted when I was 17 and a half because I knew I was going to be drafted anyway. And, and you know, I wrote this. I was only half kidding. I wrote that if they took me, I weighed 109 pounds at that time. If they took me, we were losing the war. And I, I said it half facetiously, but, you know, it, it was true. When they took me, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but we were losing the war. This was 1943 when I was uh, when I enlisted. It was right after the Guadalcanal march, the Baton thing. It, I don't know how many people are going to remember those names, but we were losing the war. So that's another story, uh, which I'll tell you if you want. How I once wrote an article of oh, so many years ago called "How Bad Can Become Good," and I wrote the main thing that somebody had asked me to do the article, the main thing that he had heard was that I had gotten typhoid fever when I was in the army and it saved my life. So Harrison, later, when you do, whenever you feel like it, if you're interested in that, let me know and I'll tell you why. Oh, but, yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, I believe you were supposed to go over to Europe, right? And and thankfully, thankfully, in a way, you got sick so you didn't get sent over with the squadron. That's the point. That's it right there. I got typhoid fever while I was in the hospital. My entire outfit, uh, company E of some battalion or other, went overseas. Uh, a little difficult for me to talk about that. None of them came back. None of them. And I was in the hospital with typhoid fever, worried about temperatures and things like that. So that's what I meant when, you know, bad things can become good. It started a whole article. You know, I'm dyslexic, Harrison. And as I get older, it gets worse. I think I've mentioned this to you. Mainly my dyslexia manifests itself worse in two main areas. Number one is direction. I have no sense of direction. I mean, none. I get lost here in my own house. But more important is with computers. I, I am just lost. You've seen that as you've uh, worked with me. I, I, oh, you were I, great. It was not too hard. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I, I'm just terrible. But the reason I mention it is that was part of my article of bad things becoming good. Being dyslexic is not a good thing, obviously. But that's what led me into my career of being known as Time Magazine called me the world's foremost memory training expert the Yoda of memory training, <laughs> all because I was dyslexic, because I was getting terrible grades. I'll tell you the story. Stop me if I'm talking too much. No, no, this is great. That's what we're here for. Okay. Mrs. Goldfisher, I'll never forget her. When I was maybe 11 years old, 10 and a half, 11 years old, she would give us a test every day on a yellow rectangular piece of paper, which we had a number from one to 10, and then she would ask 10 questions, uh, questions about things that maybe she had spoken about 
or that we had read in the other pages of a book that she had told us to read, okay? I was getting 30, 30%, 40% grades. All my classmates were getting passing grades, you know, 70, 80, whatever. The problem here and the point here is that we had to take, she graded everybody's test, marking the grade on it. So on my page, it said 4-0 with a big circle around it, you know? We had to take it home for one parent to sign. And my father, who died when I was 12, so you can see how far back I'm going, was the signee. And when he looked at that <coughs> uh, mark, 30 or 40, he would punch me. <clears throat> I'm going to go off on a tangent, which, you know, so many things happened in my life that I can't help going off on tangents. I once told this story on the Johnny Carson show. And I said, you know, my father punched me. Well, about two weeks later, 10 days later, later, Freddie DeCordova, who was the producer of the Tonight Show, called me and he said, Harry, I got to tell you, we got 8,000 pieces of mail about you, all <laughs> negative. I oh, said, no. oh, negative, what? Because in those days, it was all snail mail. You know, it was it wasn't email. So he said, we have cartons full of letters. I said, well, what, what did I do? He said, you said your father punched you. But he did. You couldn't say that for some reason. Now, I don't think it's going to matter. But at, for some reason, at that time, people were very upset. But I said, my father punched me. When I tell that story now, I say my father punished me. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> really? Isn't that strange, you know? I'll tell you another th <laughs> different story at the Johnny Carson show, which, which I did 24 times. I'm on the show, and Johnny and I became friends. The reason I mentioned that is he knew my background, okay? So he said to me one day, he said, Harry, uh, how does somebody like you, and he gave a little bit about my background, and he said, who has only one year of, he, the way he brought it up, he said to me, laughingly and smilingly, Harry, how many degrees do you have? <laughs> so I laughed, and I said, Johnny, I have one year of high school, and then we went on to something else. Okay, why am I telling you this? Another couple of weeks, 10 days passes, Freddie DeCordova calls me again. Oh, gee, Harry, we got 10,000 pieces of mail, all negative. <laughs> what the heck did I do now? You said you only have one year of high school. And every one of those letters, he said, the ones we had time to read, all are upset about the same thing. They're saying it's hard enough to keep our kids in school. We don't want to hear somebody successful. Their attitude was, and maybe it's true, anybody that was a guest on the Tonight Show was a successful person. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been on the Tonight Show. So they said, we don't want to hear a successful person say they have only one year of high school. That was the negative of all these letters. And again, you know, live and learn. I've been asked that question many times all over the world. And let's face it, Harrison, when I talk, you know I'm not a PhD. I mean, come on, you know. So... <laughs> I'll still tell the truth. I'm not going to lie. So if somebody says to me, Harry, 
how many degrees do you have? Or what's your educational background? I say, listen, I only have one year of high school, but if I had it to do over again, I would certainly get my diploma. Then it's okay. So I always say that without stopping for breath. I'll say I have one year of high school, but if I had it to do over again, I would get my degree. Then it's okay. And if if, there, if you had to do it all over again, you're 94 now. If you had, is there anything you would change other than that? Is is or would you keep it exactly the same way because it led to where where you are now? Exactly, I would keep it the same way. That that's part of that story I wrote or that article I wrote that I started to mention to you about getting typhoid fever, which saved my life, being dyslexic, which gave me a career to train my memory so my father wouldn't hit me. That, that was the whole point. You know, I didn't care about good, getting great get, uh, uh, good grades. I only cared to get good grades so my father wouldn't punch me or punish me. That was the whole point. Don't forget, again, you're talking about an 11-year-old kid, you know, so that was what bothered me. And when you say, would I do it again? Yes. I'll tell you why. And I don't want you to get 10,000 letters. <laughs> I can only wish I would get that many letters. Right. That, would be, that would be extraordinary. <laughs> well, what, the reason I say that is if I would have, st- I quit school when I was 16 because my father was dead for already four years. We had no money. I needed to get out and go to work and make some money so I could feed my mother. And the, the, the whole point here is if I didn't quit school, I was studying accounting. Now, look, I got nothing against accounting. I think that's terrific. But I probably would have ended up as an accountant. The fact that I had to quit school, that brought different things, came up, and I became who I became. So, yeah, I wouldn't change things. I would like it. Listen, I'm knocking wood mentally, Harrison. I've been a very lucky person, you know, so I can't complain. One of the things that I had seen in your story that I thought was so interesting, uh, you end up in, for example, what uh, you you you're doing civil service. That's where you meet your beautiful wife, uh, Renee. So yes. That's another uh, advantage to uh, being associated with the army. There is you got to meet uh, Renee. Um, and then you guys end up in Miami uh, thinking that there's going to be a nightclub there. Uh, there is no nightclub. Um, but there are certain points where it probably would have been easier to stop performing or or doing magic uh, and pick up a regular job like accounting. But you stuck with the magic. What, oh, yeah. what, what, what was behind that decision? Well, you know, I guess the first answer that comes to my mind is I, I wasn't good at anything else. <laughs> you know, that's it. I was pretty good with the deck of cards always. Uh, when I say always, I mean, after a while, you know, you would ask me before, and I don't think that I answered this question, because I know that I usually go off on tangents, but sooner or later I'm reminded the thing I went off of. And you, you said, how many magicians did I know, blah, blah, blah. And I started to tell you about the army. The reason I told you that is when I was a kid, when I saw my first card trick, I was 11 years old. That's when I stole milk bottles to buy a deck of cards. You got to understand another thing that I haven't mentioned to you, Harrison. I was the shyest kid in the world. Now, I'm not exaggerating. I'm talking about I was too shy to raise my hand when I was a kid in first grade to go to the bathroom. You could, I don't have to tell you the end result of that. I was, I was too shy to say I got to go to the bathroom, darn it. 
I was the shyest kid in the world, so that when I saw a card trick in my mind, I said, oh, if I could only do that. Oh, if I could do that. And I said to myself, I'd like to ask, it was a council at a park. It was called Pitt Street Park on the Lower East Side. It was a rainy day, and it taken, he had taken us into an enclosure, and he didn't know what to do with us, so he did a card trick. He knew one card trick. That's what he did, kind of keep us occupied. And I said, gee, I should have asked him how he did it. I didn't realize that you don't ask him. If you ask a magician how he did it, he ain't going to tell you anyway. You know, so I didn't. And that's when I stole the milk bottles, blah, blah, blah. I came up with four or five different ways to do that trick I had seen. Okay. Another thing I wrote, oh, God, so many years ago. I figured out four or five different ways to do this trick, a few of them better than he had done, excuse me. But I wrote, if a gigantic tree falls in the forest and if nobody is there, does it make a sound? The reason I say that is if you know a great car trick and if you never show it to anybody, does it make a sound? (laughs) You know, what's the point? So I told you that I was so shy I never made eye contact with anybody. I never spoke unless I was spoken to. But now I got this damn car trick I just figured out. (laughs) I had no choice. I had to say three words to a friend. I had to say, pick a card. Otherwise, (laughs) how am I going to do this trick? That's what started to break me out of my shyness, break me out of that terrible cage. You have no idea. I, when I say I was shy to the point of sickness, got that from my parents, I, I guess. My mother was the shyest person in the world. She would have been too shy to raise her hand if she was on a railroad track and a train was coming. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about that terrible shyness. Why? I don't know, but that's the way it was. Well, this started to break me out of my shyness. Another problem, this first friend I did the trick for said, hey, Gary, come here, watch this. And I did. All of a sudden, I'm doing this trick for a number of my friends on the sidewalks of New York till some of them started. To, they, they called me Magish. They said, hey, Magish, can you show us another trick? Problem. I didn't know another trick. <laughs> Again, that started a whole different lifestyle. Of course, now I said, oh, my God, how am I going to do another trick? I don't know one. I started to go to the library, which wasn't much help. Because in those days, remember, I'm going back like 85 years ago or something like that, 83 years ago approximately, there was a little section of magic books in the library, but all those that I saw had to do with tricks like with magnets or with ropes or with strings or things that I didn't care about. I cared about card magic. <laughs> and when I, when I found a book, that had even a few pages or one little chapter on card tricks. Oh, my God, I'd smell those pages, you know, <laughs> check out the book, hold it to my chest, and run home to read it. It was that important to me. But your question was, did I know any other magicians? No, I didn't know about any magicians, about any magic shops. And that's why I started to tell you when I enlisted in the Army, I got out, I was... Eight and a half, 18 years old, 18 and a half years old. And yes, a couple of good things happened. The main good thing was I thought when I got home 
from the army, I would sleep for three days, you know. But obviously, <laughs> it didn't work that way. I got bored out of my skull. I needed to make some money. I went to the civil service. This was funny, and I've written this. I went to the civil service. I need a job. One lady said to me, how much is two and two? I said, five. She gave me a job. That's it. <laughs> so I got And that job was on VC Street, V-E-S-E-Y Street in New York City at the GAO, what it was called, the General Accounting Office. It was like a government thing. And I walked in there. It was dead silence. There was one section with a bunch of mostly girls and a woman, sort of the chairman, you know, take, taking care, telling the girls what to do. I mean, it was terribly quiet. Well, I changed that. I started to do card tricks with people. Before you know it, I was making people laugh a little bit. There was people saying, hey, Harry, during lunch, can you do a card trick? In other ways, there was some talk going on. When I went there, was dead silence. Anyway, that's where I met Renee. So that was one good thing. Because, you know, Renee and I uh, ended up after that being married, oh God, for 66 and a half years. That's well, unbelievable. We, I, I was going to say, see, we were married 66 and a half years, but we went together for three and a half years before we got married. So we knew each other for 70 years. So, you know, that was important, obviously, the getting the job on VC Street. As I said to you before, Harrison, I've been very lucky. All these things that happened, even if originally they seemed like bad things, ended up, and I'm knocking wood mentally, they ended up very good for me. I, I Listen, I've had a, a heck of a career. I keep saying, like you said before, I'm 94 years old, and one of my cliches is growing old sucks. I have pains <laughs> in places. I didn't know I had places, for God's sakes. And But I've had one heck of a life, so I can't complain. Actually, in doing the research, I found the first uh, Genie cover you were on. Um, uh, that's you and and Renee. And next does, it, does it say a year on that? I don't. Uh, yeah, it's January nineteen sixty three. Oh my God, that's a long time ago. It's long ago enough that in the very same issue on the right side is the announcement that the Magic Castle is opening. I'll be done. You said that's it. I. I they were not open till this year. Yeah, this is actually the article in the same uh, that Larson put out, um, announcing that Wednesday, January second, the Magic Castle is now open. This magazine came out uh, January uh, of that that month, nineteen sixty three. Is that funny? I didn't remember that. Hey, listen, you mentioned the Magic Castle. <laughs> I'll give you another little, little vignette. I told you I became friends with Johnny Carson. I did his show twenty four times. And he had always told me, Harry, when you're in town, even if you're not on the show, give me a call. And if I'm free, we can have dinner, blah, blah, blah. We used to play cards together, uh, he and Carl Reiner, another old friend. Of course, they always said, if you pick up, if you touch the deck, Harry will kill you. You know, <laughs> you know? so I never touched the deck. But the reason I'm telling you this, one day, oh, there's the, oh, God. My <laughs> caption under that in one of my books for people, I don't know if you're listening because I can't see. That's uh, Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, and me. <laughs> and in one of my books, the caption under it is trying to break into showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. They were dear, dear close friends. Uh, that was a big loss. 
couple of months ago when we launched uh, Carl Reiner. But, you know, it was expected. He was 98 years old, you know, so it was expected. Now that you turned me into an emotional silliness, what the heck were we talking about? Oh, you're talking oh, about uh, Johnny Carson and the cast. Johnny Carson. We're going to we're gonna have dinner at a restaurant at the Magic Castle, I think, at that time. I'm not sure. Anyway, you ready for this? We go to the Magic Castle. They wouldn't let him in. <laughs> was he not you wearing know, the dress code? He's wearing a turtleneck. <laughs> and, a, and probably a three or five thousand dollars suit. They wouldn't let him in. I said it's Johnny Carson for God. They wouldn't let him in. So that we went to the. And you know, after that, maybe a month or so later, another thing happened. I kind of changed their laws. You mentioned Renee. I want to go to dinner at the Magic Castle with Renee. She's wearing a three thousand dollars slack suit. They wouldn't let her in. Their their principle or their law, women have to wear a skirt or a dress. She's wearing slacks. It's a slack suit worth thousands of dollars. They wouldn't let her in. But I think because of that, at least so I was told, because of that and because of the Carson experience, they've changed their laws. You can't keep out a famous person or a person, even if they're not famous, wearing an expensive thing that doesn't fit their particular rules, like a woman, a woman with a skirt or dress. I mean, a slack suit is fine on a woman. I mean, as long as, you know, a woman could be wearing a skirt that's the dirtiest thing in the world. So <laughs> that's a stupid kind of, you know, rule to have. So anyway, I think I had something to do with changing their rules, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Well, you started talking you, I, I, talking about Carson. I mean, you, you had a show on television called Professor Magic, which yes. was maybe one of the first live magic shows on television, I think, right? You know, I, somebody told me that. I don't know whether it was or not. This is going back to, my God, 1952. You know how it started? Listen, I'll give you the back. Again, if I'm talking too much, stop me, okay? Oh, no, that's the whole point of this. I, I, we, okay. everybody, is, everybody in the comments uh, is loving you. Lewis Gordon just said, that's amazing. Ken Weber said, that cover is iconic. And uh, actually, Ricker uh, Seuss says, hello, Harry. Remember dinner with you in Florida and Sammy Chiprut, nice to see you. Okay, nice, nice to hear from people that I haven't <laughs> heard from in so many years. Now, what I was telling you was, I thought that card magic was going to be my life, my career. I didn't know anything else, Harrison. I didn't have much choice, and I was good at it. So my attitude, I think, is kind of obvious. If you can make money with something you're good at, do it. Okay, long story short, I ended up, a friend of mine by the name of Richard Himber got me a job. Many, many people all know his name now, but he was a good friend. And into magic. He was a musician. Anyway, he introduced me to Billy Reed. And Billy Reed, there was a little nightclub in the 60s between Park Avenue and Lexington Avenue in Manhattan called Billy Reed's Little Club. And yes, there's the card that when I worked there. Uh, and that name on it, Lorraine, you uh, that, you actually, that you took your wife's middle name, correct? Yes, uh, which was spelled with a double R, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E. So when, uh, when we got started to go, when I started to think I'm going to be showbiz, in quotes, I changed my name to Lorraine. But What was your last name? Was it something very Jewish? 
No, it was something that I got too many people kidding me when I was a kid. It was Ratzer, the Rat, R-A-T. It's not good when you're a kid. You know, sounds much better. You know, so anyway, one of the first articles I ever wrote in Magic was for a club, I'm sure they're not in existence, I haven't been in for decades, called the Knights of Magic. It was the first magic club I joined. And for some reason, they asked me to write an article, and it was under Harry Ratzer. And that was the only time I ever used that name again after that. And the card you just showed was a bit of a problem because that was changed after a while because it said only Lorraine on it. So people thought it was a woman. So right. when, I came, when I came to the table, they were a little disappointed, you know, right? Absolutely. right. So that was changed to Harry Lorraine. Anyway, reason I'm mentioning this, you know, there are many pivot points in a person's life, plot points or pivot points. I'm working, I'm doing, and they had asked, Billy Reed had said to me, do you want to work for a salary or do you want to work for tips? I made the right decision. I said, I'll, I'll work for tips, which was maybe salary I wouldn't have got, I would have gotten the tips also. I don't know. But tips were, but listen, Frank Sinatra carried only $100 bills. That's it. So if you got a tip from Frank Sinatra, minimum was $100, right? Okay. So tips were very important. But that's not the reason I'm mentioning that. Two things happened at the little club. I was 19 years old. That changed my life. Okay. One of them was I got interested in memory when I was a kid, as I told you before, because I was getting lousy grades. My father was punching me or punishing me, if you'd rather. And one day, I'm 11 years old. I'm walking to school. That's my first book. Oh my gosh. I was a good looking guy. <laughs> you still are. Nah, not like that. I never took advantage of it. Oh, well. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I'm walking to school. I'm 11 years old about, and I say to myself, how can I stop my father from hitting me? I take a few more steps, and another little light bulb goes off. You stupid son of a bee. Get passing grades. Then he won't have to punch you. Okay. I take another couple of steps. Wait a minute. I'm getting, I say to myself, how do you get passing grades? Another few steps. You stupid idiot. Remember the answers to the questions that <laughs> Mrs. Goldfisher is asking. Okay. Another few steps and another bigger light bulb goes off. How the hell do you remember that started? I'm 11 years old. I remember going to the, my local library, and I can still visualize the woman. I swear to you, I'm talking about almost 100 years ago, and I see this lady in a black dress, Italian woman, gray hair with a bun in the back, and I say, can you help me? i got to learn how to remember things. She takes me to a room in the corner of the library, the door covered with dust, which she has, because nobody's been in there for a hundred years. She opens the door, points to a corner, and I walk there, and there are uh, about this wide a shelf of books on memory training, maybe five or six books on memory training. Some of them, most of them, dating back to the 
17th century. A few of those books are in my basement right now. All those books are memory training. I stayed in that room. She kept opening the door, this lovely woman, to see if I was okay. Because I, I didn't come out. I stayed in that room reading those books. Now, again, you have to understand that I'm stressing this because it's important. I'm 11 years old. It was hard enough for me to remember somebody who wrote current English. I'm reading books from centuries ago written in old English. I'm having <laughs> trouble, you know, I'm having trouble understanding it. But the little bits I did understand, I did things that I didn't realize that I was, I was changing the world. I started to change the little things that I understood to fit my problems, okay? It's showing things that are bringing back so many memories. That was a 3,000-word ad for my first book. That, I only wrote the headline if it's the one I wrote. Give me one evening and I'll give you a push-button memory. Is that what it says there? I can't. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to illustrate the, uh, the journey that you went on from trying to figure out how to remember to being the the Yoda of memory training. Yeah. This was my, for my first book. Anyway, uh, again, what was, <laughs> what was I telling you? Uh, you're talking about how you figured out how to get a better memory, uh, things to, uh, you know, in, in school. Okay. I started to change things to fit. Now, here's the point of this story. I start to get hundreds on my tests. And one day, I'm walking into my classroom and this is before the class starts and Mrs. Goldfisher is sitting at her desk. <clears throat> and as I walk in, she said, Harry, come here. She said, what the heck happened? You're getting hundreds on your tests, which I always thought you would get, but you were getting 40s. Every what happened? I said, I learned how to remember. She said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I said, well, I learned how to make associations. I learned how to visualize things. She said, Harry, what are you talking about? How, uh, I'll give you an example, Mrs. Goldfisher. You asked a few weeks ago, what's the capital city of Maryland? Well, I didn't know that. And when I read the answer, I saw Annapolis, because even today, Harrison, yes, people in America, what's the capital of Maryland? A lot are going to say Baltimore, you know, which it <laughs> is not. It's Annapolis, Okay. And I said to Mrs. Goldfisher, this is an interesting story, at least I think it is. I said to Mrs. Goldfisher, I applied memory methods and systems. I don't remember what words I used when I was 11. Memory tricks to remember that. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, here's what I did. I visualized a lady, a girl by the name of Mary, and I pointed. There was a kid in my class, a little girl named Mary. I said, I visualized Mary. And I saw a gigantic apple. An apple was landing, is landing on our head. An apple is landing. An apple is landing on Mary. Mary land. That tied the two things together. That's the secret of remembering things. Make one thing remind you of the other. And as I'm talking, Harrison, and here's why I'll never forget this. As I'm telling Mrs. Goldfisher the story I see her eyes blank out. I see, <laughs> I see she thinks she's, and she said to me, Harry, okay, get seat. She thought I was crazy. I said, okay, I'm never going to tell anybody again. But when I sat down 
afterwards, a lot of my classmates, hey, Harry, tell us again. Well, we, and I started to teach some of my classmates some of it, and they started to use it. You know, I've written about this. You have to use your imagination to apply good memory systems. And young kids have much better senses of imagina imagination than adults do. So they were having, and they were having fun with it. That's the thing. Oh, Harry, look what I did. I pictured the thing. I visualized the snake coming out of my ear. I mean, you know, silly things like that. So we were all having fun with it. That started it. Now, I was telling you the things that happened at the little club. I got interested in memory because of this. A book in magic came out a hundred years ago, uh, ago called Greater Magic. And there was a little section in that book about remembering cards. I started to get more interested in remembering cards than anything else. And I became quite good at it. But it was something I did with magic friends, you know? I'm at a little, at, and incidentally, this is after I started to meet some people in magic, because I started to tell you before, I didn't know about magic, about, in New York, I didn't know about Tannins, I didn't know about Holden's, I didn't know about Abbott's magic, I didn't know about these places, I didn't know any names in magic, till I got out of the army, and I started to hear about those things. I started to hear names, and I they became very important to me, Dave Vernon, John Scarney, and I'll give you, I'll go off on another, yeah, I'll go off on another tangent. I walk up to Tenants on a Saturday, which is when Tenants was so, you know, you went up in an elevator, the door opened, there was no hallway, the door opened into Tenants, and there was a mob of people. And I always saw on my right, John Scarney, Dave Vernon, and S. Leo Horowitz. I don't know how many images you remember S. Leo Horowitz. His name was Sam. He used a different name. He was a professional magician. But I recognized, because I'd seen so many pictures of him by then, John Scarney and Dave Vernon. And the interesting part of this story, when I saw them, I get out of the elevator, and I started to walk toward them. And I, I called them in a book when I wrote about this. I called them the triumvirate, because every step I took toward them, they, in rhythm, took three steps away from me. <laughs> you know, like, like they were doing a ballet. They didn't want me to come near them. I tried it a few Saturdays, and each time they walked away. Now, I had come up with a trick called the spread control. It was a takeoff. Got some famous people there. It was a takeoff on a Louis Zingoni trick. I don't know how many magicians today are going to know that name. But he did a trick called the Zingoni spread. It was a complicated thing. He spread the deck, three people selected cards. They remembered him. He had him put them back and he counted from the bottom of the deck to the first selection, from that selection to the second selection to the third selection. In other words, he counted how many cards in between. Then he would pick up the deck and shuffle one card at a time, counting the cards to get to the selections. To me, that was a bore, but he did it very well. I'm not, I'm not going to put it down, but I was not about to stand there and shuffle single cards. I came up with the spread control, which I've written in quite a few books. Magicians use it all over the world. I still fool the heck out of magicians, even though I've written about it so often. Three cards selected, they're put on the spread. I pick it up and shuffle. That's it. I got the three cards on top. 
Now, why am I telling you, telling you this? I'm up at Tannins. I'm at the counter. There are a bunch of young people around me. The older people didn't know me, not yet. All the young people around me. And I'm doing this breath control. And as I do it, and I say, name your card, and I show it to you, I hear a voice behind me say, hey, kid, do that again. It was John Scotty. <laughs> he says, do it again. I say, yes, sir. Can I remember? I'm a young guy. At that point, I'm 18 years old, you know, whatever. And I say, yes, sir. And I do it again. And he yells to Dave Vernon and Sam, S. Leo Horowitz. He said, hey, guys, come over here. Watch this kid do the Zingoni spread. He thought I was doing the Zingoni spread. They come over. I do it again. Wow, that is it. That's the best Zingoni spread. I didn't want to tell them, guys, I ain't doing this Zingoni spread. I'm doing the Harry Lorraine spread. But I wasn't about to say that then. But long story short, next Saturday, the elevator doors open on uh, at Tannins, and I see the three, the triumvirate, and I start to walk toward them, and they don't take a step away. They let me come to them. And they said, hey, heck, get to do another trick for us. That started the relationship, and that was very important. So, okay, now I I started to tell you. Well, I, I actually have a, a bunch of surprise guests who I want to bring on people throughout your your life and career. Um, so uh, I do know that when uh, in New York, one of the things that you were making money doing magic was was as a pitch man, uh, Svengali decks, multiplying rabbits. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. Up- opening up, uh, you, you were going from carnival to carnival, eventually open up your own shop on Broadway. Uh, yes. Who were some of the people that you were training to uh, do your pitches? You know, I can't remember. It started with uh, S. David Walker, who's gone now. We traveled together all over the country, just uh, pitching galleys. Uh, that's a very important part of my life. But I can't remember... Oh, I told well, you. I, I will refresh your memory because he's here right now. George Schindler's in the house. Oh, I don't remember that. George, why did I teach you how to do a picture on Galley Diggs? <laughs> when I started in magic, I didn't know I didn't know Harry Lorraine was a card guy. I thought he was a great magician, but not a card guy. And he gave me a job at Nam Loge's department store. Which one? Say that again. Nam Loge's department oh, store. God, yes, of course. And we I used to sell Svengali decks and some sponge rabbits. And it's interesting about that because that was my very first trade show. I since made a lot of money on trade shows because huh. Harry Lorraine taught me how to sell a Svengali deck and sponge rabbit. It was the same year that Rudolph the Re- those reindeer started. It's got to be like 1949. Rudolph, I heard it in the store. I hated that song because it was all I heard all day long. Rudolph, the and I didn't know you. Were, I didn't even know you were a card guy. Anyway, when I knew you, we used to. I used to go to work the Catskills, and you and, and, and Renee would be you know, doing an act called The Home Life of a Magician. Do you remember that? Vaguely. I did it for the Knights of Magic. I, I remember the Knights of Magic. We did the first legal magic show in New York, but that's another story. But anyway, <laughs> I, and he was doing that in the Catskills. We, we drive up to the Catskills, to the Red Apple Rest was a restaurant on our way up. And we after the show, we'd meet somewhere and talk. He was always great. And, and I didn't know he was doing memory. I didn't know anything about card tricks. All I knew was that, that one trick. And later on, many years later, he was doing writing books, and it was all on card stuff. I didn't do card tricks until 1973. I was doing just stand-up comedy. In 1973, I met Frank Garcia, who taught me tricks so I could write his book. Right. 
And so I started writing books for him, but that's when I learned Cartridge in 1970. But then I discovered Harry Lorraine. And if I, I got a bunch of Harry Lorraine books he hasn't even got yet. <laughs> I'm happy to see you. I'm only a couple of years younger than you. I'm going to see if I can catch up to you. I, you're nowhere near 94, George, really, are you? I'm, I'm 92 almost. Oh, that's right. You mentioned that the last time we spoke. I last for you was your 90th birthday in a, in, a, in, a, in a delicatessen with every magician in the world was in there. If you hit a bomb on there, you lose all of magic. You know, every you're right. And, and, and the, right. and those that couldn't make it I said, said the... Uh, did video, is it, that's from uh, Mayor, uh, Mayor President uh, Obama. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the, there's a, if any of you, I, I think uh, Harrison mentioned my uh, harryloreanmagic.com, my website, and there are a few videos on that. And one of them uh, is from that birthday party you're mentioning, George, right. from people who couldn't make it personally. People like David Copperfield, David Blaine, uh, Darren Brown from England. You know, some flew in. Paul Gordon flew in from London just to stay overnight. He flew home the next day. There's uh, David Copperfield. That was funny. He said it on the video. You want to hear that? Did you know that story, George? When I was writing, when I was writing Tarbell Number Seven, or uh, Tannen, Lou Tannen had asked me to write Tarbell Number Seven. And he advertised for other magicians. They said, if you have any tricks that you think Mr. Lorraine would like, you know, to put it to Tarbell, you can meet him up here on Saturdays because he's usually here every Saturday. Long story short, a young, good-looking kid comes up to me. His name is David Cutkin. And he shows me a trick with a fountain pen or something. It's making my mind. And I say, gee, you know, it's, it's not bad. Let me think about it. And he says to me, Oh, Mr. Lorraine, if you put that in top bell, and if I ever make it, I will pay you 10% of everything I earn for the rest of my life. This was right. David, David Cutting. He became David Copperfield, for God's sakes. <laughs> so on, on the video of the birthday party, he's on it, and he tells the story how we met, and at the end, which gave me a good laugh, at the end, he said, oh, Harry, that 10% check is in the mail. <laughs> we, oh, we, God. I, I ran across Harry periodically, and I, I really didn't know he was great until he started putting out his books. And he, he just never, every, every book is his last book. Did you notice? <laughs> no, and, and, and George, I didn't make that up. I, I really thought I this was going to be my last book. With the pandemic, what else are you going to do? We might as well write another book. I call it the damn-demic. And, 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 and I just did another book because Harrison mentioned before that I did 52 books. Somebody had asked me after I put out one of my uh, recent books called And Finally. I called it And Finally. <laughs> Say it's going to be, damn it, damn it, it's going to be my last book. Somebody said, Harry, how many books have you written? I was sitting here at this desk and the book was on my desk. And he said, how many books have you written? I said, you know, Truthfully, I don't know. I said, but the publisher always puts at the front, as you know, it puts books written by Harry Lorraine. Well, I said, go ahead and count them. Well, here are all my books on magic and memory. He counts them. This is like a joke. You know what he counted? 52, a deck of cards, yeah. for God's sakes. Okay. <laughs> but Harrison mentioned that before. 
and I've written one since then. Called, <laughs> called, called some more jaw droppers. <laughs> and if you go to my website, that's the first thing you see. Because my son and daughter-in-law put the ad up there, whatever. I'm leaving yeah, it to them. It's great to know you. And another another 90 years, we're going to tell stories. I remember all the names that you mentioned. Every one of them. You mean the people I mentioned in Magic, yeah. Yes, they're, they're all, they were, listen, we, we, I, I got a job in 1949, right after the little club in Max Holden's Magic Shop. I worked there for three years. And I met all these guys. I had no idea how famous they were. Harry was not a joiner. You didn't join anything, but you still, everybody knew you were in the club. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, 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 it's a huge honor to be, literally there is over 200 years of magic experience on screen right now. I'm only contributing about uh, 30 years to that total. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you guys have seen so much uh, in magic. What are the things that have changed since you started that you're glad changed? And what are things that you... Uh, Wish, wish hadn't changed or, or wish uh, they had stayed the same? I don't like what has changed in magic. I guess the uh, internet has something to do with that. Well, I, I have found that everybody, all the young people now are going into close-up magic. Cards and coins, that's all they want to see. They'll buy a deck of cards because it does one trick. And that's yeah, or, or they'll buy a trick deck of cards. And they're learning things. They're learning things from YouTube. I have seen some things on YouTube I want to throw up. So if you're looking to throw up, maybe there's some good things that uh, people are <laughs> showing on YouTube. I mean, it's incredible. And oh, you know something, and this is a personal thing, it's upsetting, but it might tell you something about the new world of card magic. I have a feeling that most of the newbies, the new people in card magic, do not know the name Harry Lorraine. Well, they do. They do know the Harry Lorraine. That's a name that they will remember. I, I ran into a guy and I said, you remember Dave Vernon? He says, no, Di Vernon. I said, no, he's Di Vernon in California. He's Dave Vernon in New York. And they, Did you ever stop to think why it's Di? I thought Dave was because his name was David. That's right. But in California, they wanted to make him something bigger. So, well, oh, yeah, God. yeah. I don't know why they did it. I'll tell you a story. I was in California and Dave Vernon was sitting in a corner. He never did anything for anybody. He just sat in the corner. And guy says to me, can you ask him to do a trick? I said, no. And wait. And went over to him. I said, you know, John Scani said he can cut four aces out of a cold deck. He says, really? Give me a deck of cards. And he started doing magic. It was so great. Because I finally got Vernon to show this guy a trick. But you know, I'm going to tell you, you bring back a little memory. It's not very important. He was a pretty old man at this point. He was living in California. When he was at the Magic Castle, I assume you know this, George. He had his own table. In a, in a corner, and I was visiting, and one of the things that they used to do in New York when we were both much younger, he would code a selected card to me. In other words, he knew my card words. He knew what I call the phonetic alphabet, you know, that certain sounds represent certain numbers. I had taught that today, and he started, and he was very good at it. Didn't change expression. He would look at the selected card and he would say to the person, don't forget it. One of the words would tell me what the card was. Reason I mention that, go forward two or three decades. He's an old, old man. I go to this table and he says to me, uh, uh, Harry, uh, uh, do that trick where you have someone pick a card. Well, I was nervous. He's this old. We haven't done it in 20 years. I don't know how the heck he's... Sure enough, I have somebody select the card, and he's looking at it, and he says, listen, don't forget your card. And he calls the card to me. 
which surprised the heck out of me at that age, you know, that he was still able to do it. And we hadn't done it in all I, those years. I remember on report. Remember the code for on report? Don't think take place. I remember the whole system. And my sister, who's about two, three years younger than I, remember that we do that occasionally. Right. We're pretty old to do that. That's for sure. Well, so, somebody in the comments just said, can we talk about Jews and magic? What a group. I think if we're going to talk about Jews and magic, we might as well bring on another Jew. He has quite the library. George is a great library in the background. Uh, we have Mayor Yedid, uh is here, and he has a ton of books, it seems. Uh, <laughs> you, 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 you know, know something? <laughs> I, if I could hey, hey Mayor, how are you, buddy? Hey, the name I remember, Mayor Yedid. That's everybody will remember Mayor Yedid. I remember him. How are you, Mayor? Good to oh. see your face. Hey, you know, everybody talks about Harry being a legend, but you know, he's also one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And if you had a sincere interest in magic, he would go out of his way to help you out. Uh, just, I mean, and I, I met Harry when probably I was about 15 years old. And when, when I was about 17, I wanted to do Harry's gambler versus magician routine. But I wanted to do the pattern that he did. I didn't want the crappy stuff he published. You know, <laughs> because he had timing, he had jokes, he had rhythm. And I asked him to teach me that. Oh, there. And Harry goes to me, you know what? Just bring me a cassette tape and, and I'll record it for you. Mm -hmm. now, this was at a time when Harry and I met uh, every single Saturday for about a 10, 15 year period at the cafeteria. So I come back the next week and I give him like a little orange cassette tape and he takes it home. And the next week he comes over, hands me the cassette tape, and he just sat there in front of his desk and he did the entire routine for me powder-wise. And that was like my closing routine for years after that. Thank you, Harry. I'm sure you're you welcome. It's quite, a, it's quite a trick. I still use it. Yeah. And, you know, other, I mean, he's always done stuff like that. Like one time he's going on vacation and I, I tell him, you know, I'd love to have an autograph from Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft. He comes back from vacation, hands me an envelope. There's an autograph A by 10 to Mayor Yedek from Ann Bancroft and, Mer and Mel Brooks. I mean, he always did stuff like that. And people don't realize how good and influential he is on that level. I didn't, I didn't remember that, but I didn't remember getting those autographs for you. Oh, boy, look at all those good looking people. <laughs> you, you know what's funny? You, you know, Harry and I worked on a lot of different projects. And, you know, so I would visit his house and sometimes we'd have dinner and stuff. And one time uh, he set up uh, a 16 millimeter uh, film projector in his middle in his living room. And I asked him, what's that? He says, well, we found these films and we wanted to watch it. You want to watch some? I said, sure. So he starts playing these 16 millimeter black and white film. And I was shocked at what was on him. It was Harry Lorraine, uh, Renee. It was Mel Brooks. And Bancroft and Dom DeLuise, and they were doing improv. And what shocked me are all those skits on those films. I remember seeing those in Mel Brooks movies years, years later. Yeah, they were great for films? No, I don't know what happened. A lot of the stuff that I collected, I've been moving to different places too many times. I lost so much stuff. You Just read every game. I'm sorry. Remember the memory game. You came up with it called the memory game. Reese Games put it out. Harry yes. I Harry still have three, I have three copies of it. it. It's become a collector's item. It's a very interesting game for a variety of reasons. 
not only is it an interesting game, it teaches you some of my memory techniques. I got to tell you about that. We were in Chicago. I was working for Reese because I developed some of their magic kits. And in Chicago, we had a room set up for the press. The press is going to come for this trade show, and they're going to interview the two of us. We sat there all day talking to one another and reminiscing. They showed, the guys never showed up. <laughs> amazing. But we had a great time. It was a lovely afternoon. Terrific. Uh, by the way, I know the answer to your first question to Harry Lorraine, which was, how can he write so many books? Because when we were working on finger fantasies and, you know, I was going to his house every day and going over his chapters, he said something to me. He said, you know, you have to reach a point when you decide you're done. And I think most people who write books continuously change everything. And that's what he would explain to me. He said, you know, you could keep making changes for the rest of your life. But, you know, you have to decide when it's over and publish the book or put out their tricks. I got and a, that's a, I got very a lot of card animations. Do you need any? Do you need sorry? Any? I got a lot of card animations. Do you need any? I got about a three, four dozen. <laughs> I'll take a couple. <laughs> Look at my website. It's all there with prices. And by the way, George, uh, George's website is showbizmagic.net. And Marietta's website is mymagic.com slash magictimes.com. No, no, that, no, no. Those are two different websites. Yes, that's right. Um, those are different ones. My Magic is the website where you can buy magic. Magic Times is a news website, but make sure you go to visit and bookmark both. <laughs> and what about Harry's website? You got a website? Harry's is HarryLorraineMagic.com. <laughs> you know what? This is turning into an infomercial, which honestly I think is appropriate for Harry Lorraine. Why yeah. not? Yeah. What's appropriate? Say it again. I said this turned a little bit into an infomercial, but who better for that than oh, oh, oh. Well, you, you had one of the most popular infomercials of all time. I had two infomercials on uh, television that J.D. Power said they were the strongest infomercials, but it was not on Magic. Hey, it was my memory power course. Harry, uh, I was going to ask you, out of those 53 books, are you counting those loose leafs and pamphlets that were part of the infomercial? Because they were separate things. No, the infomercial was the memory power course. Yeah, but is that one of the 53 books no, in your county? No, not at all. That was that was a uh, pamphlet, a book, but it yeah, was well, also five, right five, five DVDs and two, uh, five CDs and two DVDs. But and they were Dick, Dick, Dick Cavett posted the second infomercial <laughs> on it, and they were very powerful. And I recognize a few magicians on that. I think the second infomercial. I think Bob Elliott, <laughs> Hiawatha, making an appearance yes. on that. Yes, and Bob absolutely. Elliott. And they were fans of mine, but also actually used my systems. I had Bob Elliott used to demonstrate back in, my God, it's got to be back in the 1960s. I was running classes at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City. And I would, people... I don't know, I think I charged $250 for an eight-lesson course, and people will send a $50 check as a deposit to be able to come to the first lesson. And I said to them, part of my ad advertising was, I will not cash your check. If you want to leave after the first lesson, I'll give you back your check. And I did that, but I never had to give anyone back. But the point is, Bob Elliott would demonstrate for me he would stand with the blackboard behind him, and I would have the people call off numbers until there was, and I would write about the blackboard till there was like 20 or 25, and I'd say, Bob, go. 
and he would call off the number, and then I would say, can you do it backwards? He'd say, sure, and he'd call it off backwards. Nobody ever asked for their money back after they saw that demonstration. So Bob well, Elliott. Is- there, is, there is one more surprise guest, and he is uh, on the other side of the ocean. It's, a very, it's very late where he is, but I want to start by playing a quick video message that he recorded for you, Harry. Um, and so let's, I'm going to cue that in right now. Hi there, Harry. This is Michael Vincent. Greetings from London. I'm so thrilled to be sharing this video with you. And I hope it finds you well in good spirits. I just want to say a big thank you once again to you for all your great inspiration to me over the years. God bless you. Lots of love, Michael. And look who's in here live. That's Michael Vincent. It's uh, past one o'clock in the morning. He's been very patient hey in the there, middle Harry. of the night. I'm so, I'm so pleased How to are see you. Harry? I'm sorry. It's good. To see. I must apologize. Said, How are you, Harry? With my hearing. So I can't hear a thing. As you know, I'm deaf. But I wanted to come in and I... say hi just to see you. And you're looking great, my friend. For a for a ninety four year old guy, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Michael, thank you for that uh, video you put always, out about the magic the book. Michael put out a video of the magic book. That's amazing. That's it. Good lord. <laughs> that, that's is that Alan? Allen? Yeah, Alan <laughs> Allen and Michael and me. Boy, it was another great character. Yeah, that's on that's on Jane Street. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Um, really wonderful. I was just then what a good old days. It's astonishing. I remember you as a boy, and all the memories that I have of being in your company face to face, and now it's a digital experience. I don't know if you can hear me, Michael, but it's been my pleasure. Nothing can ever beat the life experience of being in your company, Harry, but I'm so grateful to Harrison for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. God bless you, my friend. And God bless you. Thank you so much. Michael Vincent, everybody, all the way from the the UK, um, battling, uh, he, he... Harry, he he had trouble getting on, and he put so much time and effort into recording the video and to getting on. Um, so you, you can tell that he he really really loves you. So I'm, I'm glad he was able to join us. Um, and uh, and Mara and George are still here. Um, the comments are going crazy. We are uh, getting towards the end. Um, Jeff Abbott said Michael doesn't look Jewish. Uh, that's true. He might have been the outlier uh, on this Jewish panel. <laughs> um, but if you have any questions for Harry or our panel, please make sure you put them in the comments. Uh, they're on my right side, but they might be below you. Um, so make sure you do that. Uh, and we have uh, a question already coming in. Did Harry do Johnny Carson's last show and exit the audience members by memory? I believe you did exit the audience members by memory for a different show, correct? Let me make sure I understand the question, Harry. Say your question again. Sure. Glenn wrote... Uh, did Harry do Johnny Carson's last show and exit the audience members by memory? But oh. I believe it was a different late night show where you had them walk out one at a time. No, uh, that was a different show. I never made my audience walk out. The, 
the hosts would have killed me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, what I did is uh, the 500 people stand up and I'd call their name and ask them to sit down as I called their name. The only time he could be talking about is a show for David Frost. David Frost had his own show. And, you know, he's from England. He had his own show. He was Sir David Frost. He had his own show in uh, America out of New York. There, there you go. What happened, I had done a show a few times. Once I got drunk on his show, he had published, he didn't publish, but he wrote the foreword for a bunch of little pub uh, pamphlets uh, on different subjects. He had sent me the six books. He said, Harry, the next time you come on the show, I'd like to talk about one of the pamphlets. I want to sell them. I want you to show how to make you an expert in this thing. So would you pick one of them? There was a book on opera, a book on regular music, a book on language, etc. And there was one on wine. I picked one on wine. I don't know anything about wine. I certainly didn't know then. But I memorized the book. I, ju I told David, as long as they ask me stuff that's in this book, I will give them the answer. I may not understand what the heck I'm talking about, but I'll give them the answer from that book. And that's what we did. But what he didn't tell me is after we did this, there was a real wine expert on the show with me. And we were, I was fooling the hell out of him. He thought I was a great wine expert. I didn't, I don't know anything about wine. Now the next thing, and David didn't tell me about this, they come out with a pushcart with a bunch of wine bottles on it and a big pail of ice, etc. We were going to do a testing thing. Well, I didn't know about those in those years. So we st long story short, we start to test. And the people that know about this take the wine in their mouth, they wiggle it around and spit it out. I didn't know that. I swallowed it. So, <laughs> you know, by about the sixth or seventh one, I'm stoned. I was drunk on his show. So that was one thing with David Frost. Now to get to the answer to that question. It was David Frost's last show of that series. He was going back to England, whatever. And he said to me before the show, Harry, you please remember everybody's name the way I usually do. Well, what I'd like to do is to have them leave instead of having them sit down as they usually call their names, have them leave. I said, fine, I don't care, you know. Okay, there were four or 500 people in the studio audience. I re and, and he said, we're gonna give you enough time to remember everybody, because I, I want them all out of here. I want them to leave as you call their name. They gave me enough time. I met four or 500 people, whatever. And what I said, would everybody please stand up? As I called your name, please leave. I had to be careful. I had to call the people on the aisles because if I called somebody in the middle, they had to step up, you know. So I had to be very careful. Long story short, I called the last couple of, a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Goldberg, you could go. They leave. And what neither one of us had thought about or nobody thought about, I'm used to when I finish, I call the last name. There's a, an ovation, a loud of screams and applaud. This time I call all 500 names, it's dead silence, <laughs> right? I think David and I, we were shocked. But fortunately, I'm knocking wood mentally, I'm pretty good at these kind of things. 
there was a stunned silence. <laughs> I put my arm around David Frost after I had just called the last Mr. And Mrs. Goldberg. I'm Harry Lorraine. You're uh, David Frost. Let's get the hell out of here. And we walked out, <laughs> and the last shot was the camera on our backs walking out. Right. And when we got backstage, he threw his arms around me. He said, Harry, that was the best goddamn closing we could have had. <laughs> I had no choice. I didn't know what else to do. But knock wood, knock my head. Would not get I'm pretty good at that. I love that. And uh, keep those questions coming in. We will get to them. Um, Mayor, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, um, maybe this is my last question for you, but uh, going from being a fan of Harry's writing, what what – what lessons did you take from just reading his writing? And then what was it like to have him write your book? That's got to be an incredible experience. Well, you know what? Nobody took my finger magic seriously at that time. But Harry and I were friends already. And I and people started doing my finger routines. And it got around. And I wasn't getting credit. So I knew I had to do a book. And I spoke to Harry about it. And he threw a, an amount of money at me that he knew I was I couldn't afford to write my book. <laughs> but <laughs> it was a lot more than he got paid for close-up card magic. Let me put it that way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I said, well, can I pay you off, you know, in installments? And he said, okay. And, you know, he, he was surprised and he did it for me. And we spent a few weeks working on the book and he wrote the book. And, and he did a phenomenal job and, and I got to use his name. Uh, to sell the book because nobody ever heard of me before and nobody was ever going to remember my name uh, if, if it wasn't Harry behind it. Oh, your name again? Yeah, exactly. The, uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear the last thing. I asked, I asked him what his name was. I forgot for a minute. Oh, oh, oh. George has still got it. He has a list. By the way, George has a list of jokes. It's called Schindler's List. It's <laughs> always hilarious. I, I remember you. when I first met Harry. They made a movie about it. I remember when I met Harry uh, after a few times, I said, do you remember my name? He said, no, but if you put a dollar in my hand right now, I'll never forget your name. <laughs> you, you know, I used to say that to people seriously. I wrote one incident, I'm driving, and I'm, I stay within the speed limits, and some idiot is passing me on the left, and the passenger sitting there opens his window and yells out, what's my name? And after the crash, I told him his name. <laughs> it's funny. He, you know, I used to say that. You know, I'm remembering people, that's work. You want me to work? That's 150 bucks, and I'll tell you your name. They'd say, thanks anyway. <laughs> but it didn't work with my book. <laughs> right. Do you, do you have any idea? You're telling me how your book started. Do you know how close-up card magic started? Yeah, but go ahead. That was uh, up at Tannins. Uh, it was late in the day. There was a group of people at the counter, and Jimmy Herpick, I don't know if you remember Jimmy Herpick. Jimmy worked for Lieutenant, was doing card tricks for them. With about 10 people, a crowd watching him. Lou stuck his head out, and he said, Jim, I need you for a minute. I was standing with the crowd, so Jim said, Harry, can you do me a favor? Can you? Keep these people entertained while I talk to Lou. I said, sure. I walked around. He gave me the deck of cards, and I started to do some card magic for these people. So long story short, I saw peripheral vision. Jimmy 
had Lou standing on the, at the side watching me. When I finished and the people were laughing and having fun, they left. Jimmy and Lou came out and Lou said to me, Harry, can you teach some of the things I just saw you do? That's what started it. I said, sure. In those days, I was very young. I said, sure, to anything. I didn't know. You know I, I said, sure. That's what started it. And somebody after, did you know this? I just Somebody just asked me about it. Close Up Cards Magic came out, and it started to sell. Richard Himba helped me a little bit in, in making people know about it. And what happened, Lou got a letter that he showed me where the guy raved about the book, but one sentence in it became very important. He said, Mr. Tannen, you should build a cathedral where Harry Lorraine walks for his trick out of this universe. That's what he wrote. Now, the reason I mention it and the reason I remember it is Lou started to use that in his ads. He said, so-and-so said, you got to build a cathedral where Harry Ray was, blah, blah, blah. And he used it for a long time in the ads. And that, I assume, helped sell the book. That cathedral is now a synagogue in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> That's going on Schindler's List. <laughs> um, and, you know, I got I to gotta leave you with this. Because, there's, you know, it's the way my mind works. I'll start something, we go on something else. But the mind always comes back, and I got to finish this. I told you that a few things happened at the little club when I was 19 that I called pivot points, changed my life. One of them was that uh, there was a guy by the name of Jack Buckholz and his wife, who was a television producer. And he said, Harry, can you do these kind of tricks for kids? And as I just said to you before, which reminded me of it, I said, sure, in those days, anything. I was 19 years old. I said, sure. Well, long story short, that's how this pamphlet happened. He introduced me to a guy named Mr. Zacks, who ran a candy business. It was a copy, a, a copy right, right off M&M's, but he had a nice candy outfit. Anyway, long story short, Renee and I wrote a show where I was the a retired vaudevillian, and I was running a candy store. What's funny about this, but it worked, a retired vaudeville, I was 19 years old. Right. <laughs> so they, they, they grade my hair. I always make a joke about it. I never could wash it out. You know, I had jet black hair in those days. They grade my hair. I wore fake eyeglasses, which now I can't see with eyeglasses. But I did tricks for kids. The point was, once a week, kids would come at the candy store and there was the guy's candy all over the place. That was the point, you know, seeing his candy. And I did magic for them. And that booklet you showed before, that was the first thing I ever wrote. And it was very important because it told me that, yeah, I can write. I can teach. I taught 53 tricks in that little booklet. Okay. It was called 52 tricks, but I always add. So I added <laughs> more. All right. So it's 53. Uh, tricks. That was the first thing, the television show. The second thing, and I got to tell you this, like I told you, I thought card magic would be my life. I was doing memory work with cards only for other magicians. You know, they thought it was great. We talked about it. There was an actor by the name of Victor Jory. 
remember. I don't him. know how many people remember him now. He used to come to our magic shop. Okay, he was interested in magic. Which which magic shop was that? Max Holden. Ah, nice. Right, I, right. Uh, you know, he was doing a play. You know, Orson Welles always yelled that he, he, at least to me, that he started the idea. A play where the head, the main character, was a detective, but also a magician. Orson Welles did that once. And he said he started the idea. Anyway, Victor Jory was doing that. Okay. Well, and he played Helen Keller's father in the movie The Miracle Worker that Annie Bancroft, my closest friend, it's funny, somebody called me before. Can you, I don't know if you can take a close-up shot. <laughs> he, he asked me to read this letter. It's from Anne Bancroft, dated September 1969. You ready for that? I got 50 years. And at the bottom, she says, you are a miracle worker. Because the movie she got the Academy Award for was the miracle worker. And anyway, Victor Jory was in that same movie. Now, here's the point. He comes in with a friend. I do my thing. I did a standard act, you know, from a little box I carried, took out stuff and did tricks. He comes back a few days later with a different friend to do. He says, Harry, the same tricks. I do. One of the things that I did without even thinking about it, that started the whole, that's Annie Bancroft's letter, started it. I wanted to do at least one different trick for Victor Jory. In other words, what I was doing for his friends or what he wanted me to do was the standard thing I did at every table. Fine. But I did a different trick for Victor Jory, a different card trick. Again, long story short, he came in 12, 15 times with different people. And the point is, I ran out of card tricks to do for him. You know, I was 19. Though what I knew was finite. Now, you know, as I grew older, you give me a deck of cards, I can make up that I can go on forever. Not then. I didn't know what to do. The only choice I had was a memory stunt with cards. So talk about pivot points. I got the title for your new book. <laughs> pivot points. Pivot points. Long story short. Well, <laughs> I, I, I said to Harrison before we started, I said, stop me if I'm talking too long. You know, all you got to do is say, shut up. No, it's great. I, I want to uh, thank Mayor and George for joining us. Um, Mayor, thank you so much. You can find oh, Mary. Well, I want to say one, one thing. Yes, please I do. Leave. Please do. Harry, you have no idea how many pivot points you've created in your life for thousands and thousands of magicians, me and included. Thank you. And I love you always, Harry. Thank you. Love you. MyMagic.com for his magic products and Magic Times, which is being relaunched. Make sure you uh, check that out. Sign up for the email list. Uh, and George, you were starting to, you, you uh, agreed with Mayor's uh, sentiment about uh, the pivot points, if you want to elaborate. Oh, well, a lot of pivot points, but I, there's a story I didn't tell, but I'll, I'll tell you the next trip. Oh, no, you can tell me. I would love to hear it. Well, Harry Harry teamed up with a, with a, a, a basketball player. Remember what was his name? Jerry Lucas. Jerry Lucas. And they put out. I, I, have, I have a list of home of crooks. He's on top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, so he sold a, a, a trick called the Invisible Deck to uh, Reese Games. And Reese was a manufacturer of toys. He put it on the market all over the country. Magicians were upset. One guy said, he's put it. So I said, I, let me talk to him. I was doing a magic set for Reese. I said, you know what? I'll buy all your invisible decks 
and I bought all the inventory and I sold them to D. Robinson Company. I made a nickel deck. I made a nickel deck. I made a lot of money, and we took it off the market. But it was, it was good. Jerry Lucas was the guy involved with that. Remember Jerry Lucas? Biggest crook. I put it. Listen, I, he's the biggest crook I ever met. I'm serious. What well, didn't mean? I, I don't care if he here. I wish he would sue me so I could tell the world what a crook he is. It's awkward, but you have one more surprise guest. He was in the NBA. I'm I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Jerry Lucas is not going to be on the show. He would be some surprise guest. I'll give he's, you a call tomorrow. Harry will talk. <laughs> he really <laughs> stole. He stole every. But I got to be honest with you. The memory book was already written. Listen, I wrote the memory book for a company called Stein and Day, okay? I remember them. Stein was a magician. He liked magic, yeah. His wife's name was Patricia Day. That's why it's called Stein and Day. So we're home, Renee and I. The phone rings. Renee answers it. She says, Harry, this is interesting. It's Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis was a friend. I had done the Carson show, but he was hosting it. We got friendly, blah, blah, blah. She says, honey, honey, it's Jerry Lewis. I pick up the photo. It wasn't Jerry Lewis. It was Jerry Lucas. So <laughs> he wants to meet me. He comes to the house. Long story short, I had a townhouse on Jane Street in New York City, which I don't know. I sold it for something like 18, $18,500,000. So it was, but I didn't pay anywhere near that. I paid eighty-five, ninety thousand for it way back. In 1947, I don't remember when. Anyway, he walks in and he looks around and he said, you paid for this from magic? I said, no. He said, well, from what? I said, memory. He said, what do you mean? What's memory? He had no concept of what mem what I was doing, excuse me, <laughs> in the memory area. That's what started it. But what I want to tell you is, I put his name on, I called Stein and Saul Stein. I said, I want to put another name on the book. Would this help? You got to remember, Jerry Lucas was a bit of a name then. He was work, uh, playing for the New York Knicks, and he was pretty much of a name. Although that Irish, the coach or the owner of the Knicks, once said to me privately, we're going to make Jerry Lucas uh, retire. You know, in other words, he was getting to the point where he wasn't that good. But he was a fairly well-known name at this time. So what I did, the book was all written. I changed every I to the editorial we, you know, that's it. And put his name on it. And he helped sell the book. I, one of the problems with him, we worked together from the East Coast to Chicago. In Chicago, we separated. He went one direction, I went to the other. I had to pay attention. Saul Stein would call me and he'd say, Harry, did you call Jerry and tell him blah, blah, blah? Of course, all he talked about was basketball. That was not the point. The point was to sell the bloody book. So I called him. I said, look, obviously you can start. They're going to introduce you as a basketball star. But you've got to know how to segue immediately from basketball to the memory book. So I had to call him a few times to teach the idiot how to do that. But he, he obviously... <laughs> The book became a large bestseller. He, so never, I, he never read the book? I imagine, sure, he read it because he wanted to steal everything I did. He stole not only my memory teaching, he stole my background. He, he would tell people when they asked him, what's your background? He would give my background. Listen, Mel Brooks and I were sitting on a floor 
on Jane Street watching TV because Mel was looking for a commercial he had just done. As we're turning the dial, I see Jerry Lucas. It's a show called The 400 Club, The 700 Club. It's a club. It's a, a, a religious show. I think that's The 700 Club. I think so. I'm not sure. Anyway, there's Jerry Lucas sitting there being interviewed, and the interviewer says to him, how in the world did you learn these kind of things? And Jerry says, the Lord taught me. <laughs> you must be the Lord, Harry. You're the Lord. Harry Mel, Mel you Brooks. are a god of magic. You Mel, Bro- got to many. Mel Brooks turns to me and says, you are the Lord. <laughs> after, <laughs> after this schmuck, says the Lord, taught him. You can, uh, you can delete schmuck. <laughs> I think that one's okay. I think that one's in Yiddish, so I think we can leave it in. <laughs> you can't delete. You can't delete its its connection from Jerry Lucas, but you're gonna. Delete the word. Alstein was an amateur magician. He belonged to the IBM, and I was trying. I was pitching a book, Magic with Everyday Objects, and I went to pitch it. He said, "I don't need another magic book." But in his bookcase, there a whole bunch of books. I, I said, "Take out a book," and I did a, an impromptu book test. He says, how do you do that? I said, I won't tell you unless you buy the book. And he bought the book. I'll tell you one one thing about uh, Saul Stein. He had, wrote, uh, he had published two books for me. The mem- uh, the uh, My first book, uh, no, no, Saul Stein did the memory book and uh, another book. I didn't want to work with him anymore because he was a little bit, I didn't like the way he was handling the money, okay? I don't want to use any other words. But in those days, if you write a book and it's still the same, there's a boilerplate clause on top that the publisher always has first call on right. the next book you write. And years ago, somebody asked me, how did you, why and how did you write a book for the public that became very important? It's called the magic book. You had Michael Vincent on before. He has a video talking about the magic book. He made me cry. He said the greatest writer that ever lived, blah, blah, blah. I said, he made me cry when I watched it. Anyway, that's not the point here. I wanted to get away from Sal Stein. So a guy by the name of Owen Laster, who died many years ago, was the head of the literary bureau of William Morris Agency. He said the only way to get out of a contract like that where he says he has the right to the next book is to do a book that he finally does not publish. <laughs> so I said, how do we do that? He said, you got to do a book that I'll put up as an audition. What? Uh, not an audition. Uh, what do you call it when people make offers? An auction. Call it an auction. He said, so you got to do a book that he is going to finally not want to publish. Well, you just reminded me because he had written books on magic. He had published books on magic. So the only way I was able to get out of this, I said, okay, Toad Lester, I'll write a book on magic for the public, not for magicians. Okay, long story short, it becomes an an auction. Different publishing houses, random house, uh, whatever, all over the place making offers for the book, which I was very pleased about. They were offering, you know, big money for, for this magic book, as is Salt Stein. And again, long story short, 
he finally says, I, I can't afford anymore. And he backs out. And we sell. Somebody else wins the auction. Fine. I'm away from Saul Stein. I've broken that contract. I'll tell you the end of the story, which always is funny. I'm in Owen Lass's office. We're very happy. We got away from Saul Stein. Owen says to me, there's only one thing left to do, Harry. I say, what? He says, you got to write the damn book. Right. <laughs> I, I, I had no book. Let me, me tell you. Me you, tell you. So that's, what, that's how the magic book let me, let me tell you a nice thing about Saul Stein. He called me one day and he says, George, we're going bankrupt. We're going to sell the line. And he, he, I was able to get out of my contract because he gave me a heads up. That was a nice thing he did. No, they, oh, for some if, Harry, if Harry writes a 54th book called oh, Long Story Short, I believe you're entitled to at least 10% of the proceeds. <laughs> 5%. There's a, verbal, there's a verbal contract on this show. It's interesting. Sal Stein went out of business. Maybe some of the things that he did that I didn't. Uh, well, that's didn't the only thing. I, I, only two, two, I uh, met him twice. Once when, and this time when he told me to get out. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I have to start wrapping this up. Um, By the way, the book is still in print. Magic with every object, and another company has it, and I can't get out of the contract because they put printed on demand. And I, I get the rights only when they get out of stock. They'll never go out of stock. That's not if they print on demand. Goodbye, Harry. Nice talking to you. George, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can follow okay. all this stuff. Showbizmagic, B-I-Z, showbizmagic.net, not .com, .net. Uh, George, thank you so much, so much for joining us. Mwah. Love you, and hopefully I'll see you very soon. Harry, we'll do this again in five years. You got a deal? Final story, because people are going to ask you this. If they go to that magic site and click on videos, you can see me on Johnny Carson. You can see me do the magic square. You can see all the famous people from my party when I was 90 years old. I'll do that. So you might get a kick out of that. Goodbye, Harry. George, thanks so much. And uh, and you know what? I, I do realize that. So Shin Lim was episode three. He was 28 years old. We gave him about an hour. So by that math, there are still four hours left to go of this interview. Um, but I think I think we'll try to uh, keep it to about two more questions. Um, but Jeff Moshi sent in this question. He said, what are your favorite tricks to do? You're talking to me about what, for card tricks? Uh, if it just says favorite tricks, but if you want them to be card tricks, you can. I only do card tricks for people. Uh, you know, it's a difficult question to answer because it's according to the audience. I all, I'll tell you what I start with. I always start with Halo Aces. And I'll tell you my story. I'm given a deck of cards. I look through them. Yeah, it's a regular deck. I shuffle. I say, you know, I've had a dream all my life. You know, most men dream about making a lot of money, love affairs, health, things like that. I always dreamt that I could take any deck, shuffle it thoroughly, cut it into small piles, and then turn it over, and then I start to turn over an ace, Another ace of my ending is, oh, my God, I think my dream just came true. And I showed her four aces. That's halo aces. I go into another ace trick from that. I love four ace tricks. So that's my beginning. As far as favorite, magician versus gambler, uh, greatest card handler, out of this universe that I mentioned before. I mean, there are so many. That's a, they, hey, come on. I've written in mag if magic books, I think, 30 books plus 20 years of apocalypse. How am I going to pick one favorite? Yeah. Uh, a couple of people asked about memory stuff. Uh, one thing that you you mentioned on Johnny Carson, um, 
he, he, uh, you, you had said that it's a myth that as you get older, your memory starts to get worse. You said it gets better. Uh, that was something that you said, I believe you said it on 19, in 1988 uh, on the Carson show. Do you still believe that at 94? I'm a good example of it. I, well, I will agree with that. I, there was a couple of, uh, of tangents that you picked up way later that I, I hadn't remembered. So yeah, your memory is as sharp as ever, for sure. This is very important. You know, I once wrote, if you leave your arm hanging down for six months, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but if you leave it and don't use it, it's going to atrophy and you will never be able to use it again. The same with your mind. Most people, you know, are all born with great memories. I've said, I've said that to my audiences for eight decades, for God's sakes. We're all born with great memories. There's one problem. You don't know how to use it, for God's sakes. You're letting it lie dormant. I want to wake up that memory for you. And the more you use it, the better your mind gets. So to kind of answer your question, I'm not a doctor. I can't speak to everybody. But I believe, and doctors incidentally have told me this, real doctors, have said, you know, Harry, I think that your systems have saved a lot of people from Alzheimer's and things like that because they've been using their mind more than all the other people that get these kind of sickness. So... I don't know if that's true or not. I'm going to say what I said years, uh, so many times. I have one year of high school, so I'm not going to tell you anything about medicine. But <laughs> doctors have said that to me. And one doctor, and I'm going to leave you with this, talking about doctors, which has nothing to do with what they're talking about, but a little bit about memory. He's, I'm talking to him about uh, operating on people. And he says to me, Harry, I don't need that. Look. And he shows me 8,000 books on his shelves on memory. Uh, not on memory, I'm sorry, on medicine. You know, he, and he says, so if I have a problem, I gotta, I'll find a book. You know, and I said to him, and I wrote about this, and I mean it very sincerely. I said, you know something, Doc? If you're operating on me, and you see something that you got to take care of very often, I would prefer that damn it, you do what to do right away instead of looking for it in a goddamn book. <laughs> so you better remember what you got to do, no matter what you see when you cut somebody open. There. And uh, we, are at, we are unbelievably at the last question. I could do this for hours. Um, and this has been just an incredible honor. And it's just, uh, you know, I, I know Michael Vincent mentioned this uh, in his video to you. Um, the one that's on your website, Harry Lorraine Magic. I'll pull that up, harrylorrainemagic.com. Um, that you should never meet your heroes. And he and Michael Vincent said, actually, you should, as long as you do your homework. Um, it has been a complete honor. A lot of people who are watching this show are young magicians, performers who are just starting out. Uh, what advice, what final bit of wisdom would you impart to them uh, as they start their magic career? I've written it so many times lately to the new people. Start to read the good stuff. That's my advice. I've written it for you. That's a perfect, perfect way to end. Harry, thank you so, so much. Uh, I can't thank you enough. You're an incredible person. You're an incredible inspiration, not just to me, but to thousands, if not millions of people, literally all over the globe. Thank you so much. Take care, stay safe and stay well. And hopefully I'll talk to you again soon. Hope so. My pleasure. Good night. Take care. Harry Lorraine. Oh my God, what an incredible uh, honor and privilege. I can't say it enough. Just, uh, he's just such an incredible person. And um, th this was our longest episode. And I think 
it, it, it could have been longer. He's so many stories, a uh, life incredibly well lived, uh, just uh, pivot points and vignettes. And uh, uh, maybe there's a 54th book in it. I hope there is. Uh, that would wrap, a deck has two jokers. So that's 54 right there. Um, and he has to give you an extra one. So maybe 55 here, we're, we're hoping. Um, but that has been episode 29 of Who Books That? Uh, huge thanks to everybody who tuned in. David Regal with a, a kiss and a hug. Uh, Ken Weber, um, who said it felt like your shortest episode. I agree. Uh, we already have it quoting. Start to read the good stuff. I've written it for you. What an incredible uh, piece. Great episode. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching all over the world. Downs out in Texas. Uh, so thank you guys so much. It's every Wednesday. Uh, so make sure you tune in every Wednesday at 7 p.m. or 4 p.m. if you're on the West Coast. There is going to be a, qu a quick hiatus, so next week there will not be a new episode. But I encourage you to download the old episodes, including this one, at whobooksthat.com. You just go to that link and then click in and get the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Join the IBM magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. I have it memorized now. Um, and uh, good good memory. Uh, although I don't know if it's as good as Harry's. Harry, it's... Uh, I hope that I have half the memory he has if I make it to 94. Um, Twitter and Instagram at Harrison Comedy. That has been Who Books That? Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for supporting. Uh, and we'll see you again very, very soon. Uh, and a huge thanks to our special guests. Can't forget those. Um, make sure you go to showbizmagic.net for Mary Edit, mymagic.com, and magictimes.com for Mary. Uh, that's Mary Edit, showbizmagic.com. .net is George Schindler, Harry Lorraine Magic, of course. Buy all of his books. Support Harry Lorraine. That's it. We did it. Go have dinner. Enjoy the rest of your night. My name is Harrison Greenbaum. This has been Who Books That? Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum? Harrison Greenbaum. I'm singing the theme song. Singing the theme song. It's a theme song. I'm singing it. Singing it.